Hello and welcome everyone to the second episode in the Linklaters Competition Litigation podcast series, which focuses on developments in the UK market for litigation funding. I'm Tom Castles and I'm joined today by my colleague James Henner and also by Simon Latham from Top Thunders Augusta Ventures. Uh, and Simon's very kindly agreed to join us to provide some valuable insights from that perspective. Thanks, Tom, uh, and welcome, Simon. Uh, now, to set the scene, over the past decade, we've seen a dramatic rise in the use of litigation funding in competition disputes, um, and in particular for collective actions. Uh, to give a flavour with some facts and figures of the value of the UK funding industry as a whole, it has been suggested that the value of the pipeline of court cases and cash held by the top UK litigation funders reached two billion in the last financial year, which is double what it was just three years ago. And according to a study by the European Parliament, there are at least 45 litigation funders operating in the EU, with the majority of those based in London. Now of those funders, uh, 15 fund competition disputes uh, and interest in this area is increasing. So Simon, um, we'd certainly be very interested to hear about your experience of this growth and what you think might be driving it. Yeah, thanks, gents. Um, well, look, as someone who pretty much focused solely on, on funding competition disputes, I'd, I'd love to take credit for all of that growth myself, but I don't <laughs> think that's really right. I mean, I think the, the Taking a step back in the in the last few years, we've obviously seen um, huge market turmoil arising from the, the COVID pandemic. So I think it's fair to say that um, you know a, a, that has played a big part in certainly from the investment side, appetite to move into an asset class which is yielding uncorrelated returns. Um, you know, in, for example, Augusta closed a 250 million capital raise in that period um, because as you know, investors not only see um, credibility of partnering with, with litigation funders, but also the ability to deliver in that space. Um, and speaking specifically on competition, um, a number of other factors have fed into the, the pipeline of opportunities for, for funders. Um, the damages directive has obviously opened the door for greater private enforcement of competition disputes uh, across the EU. And then looking at the UK in terms of the collective actions or class actions um, regime in, in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, um, there are obviously huge opportunities there, as you may have seen in the press, from large multi-billion pound uh, disputes that, that, are, that are on foot there. That is, that is fascinating, um, Simon, and I, I'd observed that we've also seen the court's approach to third-party funding evolve quite materially in recent years. I mean, I think there's traditionally been a sort of fairly conservative, instinctive hostility to litigation funding and I think it was initially viewed with a bit of suspicion. And I suppose the worry of the courts was that introducing commercial inter interests would interfere with the purity of the administration of justice. Um, but I think the courts now seem to be alive to the, the practical reality that without funding, you've got a lot of claimants out there that simply wouldn't be able to bring any claims at all due to the significant costs that are involved in litigating, particularly in this jurisdiction. So funding is now, um, I think, seen as a pretty important pillar in ensuring access to justice. Um, and, and I think there's recently been a good example of this in the Court of Appeal um, in the trucks litigation just earlier this year, James. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Sure, thanks, Tom. Um, so yeah, as, as you say, um, in March this year, there was a uh, helpful or interesting um, Court of Appeal decision uh, in two of the trucks cases. And essentially the Court of Appeal ruled that uh, the third party funding arrangements in place, uh, whereby the amount paid to the funder was to be determined by reference to the damages awarded to the claimant, did not constitute damages based agreements, um, what we often call DBAs. Um, now, the reason that is significant is that DBAs are prohibited for opt out collective actions in the CAT. And the contrary outcome uh, could therefore have affected a large number of live funding arrangements. Um, now, the judgment all turned on whether the funding arrangements were considered to be claims management services. Now, if they were, then they would have been categorized as DBAs and therefore have been prohibited. But the Court of Appeal agreed with the CATS interpretation at first instance and found that claims management services were, and I quote, to be interpreted as applying in the context of the management of a claim and therefore not to the mere provision of financial services by a third party funder who plays no role in the conduct of the claim. Um, while we're on this, the Court of Appeal also made it clear that the CAT could actually allow claimants to amend their funding arrangements to ensure that they don't fall foul of the rules regarding DBAs, um, which, which is obviously helpful in allowing funders to adapt as this area of law um, develops. Um, and uh, to, to pick up on the point um, you made, Tom, about this being a key pillar in ensuring access to justice, um, just quoting the Court of Appeal again, um, they noted that it was uh, acknowledged, wi widely acknowledged that funding played a valuable role in furthering access to justice. So Simon, how is the funding industry responding to this decision and the increasing acceptance from the courts? Well, I mean, I can't say I can speak for all funders, but certainly those that I've spoken to um, were not overly concerned about the this this particular dispute because I think all of them recognize that the role as a third party funder is is purely to, to provide finance and um, I think it was always viewed as sort of business as usual as far as the collective regime and the cat is concerned I think it's interesting, I personally found it quite interesting that of the number of defendants involved in that case um, in the trucks litigation it was only really one who was driving that argument forward and I don't think many of the other defendants necessarily um, thought there was much in, in in this particular line of argument so as I say bit, very much business as usual um, and yeah I, I think it's, um, it's I, we're only going to see more of these collective actions in, in the cat. I think I think that's right Simon it's, I mean we do on the defendant side we do occasionally see examples of claims where we genuinely think there's no real claimant interest in play and everything is driven really by the commercial interests of lawyers and funders but that is a very distinct situation from funding by a professional third-party funder in return for a reasonable share of recoveries but without any further involvement in the case but as i understand it, if the funder provides anything more than financial support there is a risk that the arrangement then becomes unenforceable is that right that is right tom um and there are also several ethical considerations uh in this vein such as managing conflicts of interest um 
and that all led to a code of conduct being published by the Association of Litigation Funders in 2011, which Simon will no doubt be very familiar with, um, and that was recently updated uh, in 2018. Now, that code of conduct is self-regulatory, um, and it only applies to members of the Association of Litigation Funders. Um, and it has received some criticism from the courts in recent cases, um, notably the ingenious litigation, which um, anyone who's come across this, this field will, will be familiar with and is, is worth looking into if, if this is an area of interest. Um, and in that litigation, it was suggested that membership of the Association of Litigation Funders was not sufficient to give confidence that a funder would actually meet costs liability and that the code of conduct was, and I'm, and I'm quoting here, not a very long or detailed document. Now, Simon, what do you think the future of the industry will look like in terms of regulation? Um, well, look, I mean, I think it's, uh, firstly on, on Ingenious, it's, um, I think the, the core of that um, decision is, is, is really around meeting adverse costs as opposed to financing you know, the, the plaintiff's side costs of, of funding. And, and the code of conduct is um, pretty clear in terms of how funders um, allocate and uh, maintain sufficient funds to fund the case. And typically adverse costs are met in any event by, by adverse cost um, insurance or after the event insurance. So, um, you know, I think it's very much the case that the code, for, as far as the UK is, 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 a, is, a, um, is a viable way of maintaining um, professionalism within the industry. Um, and I think it's that's sort of picked up on by the, the Competition Appeal Tribunal, who takes a, a very different view to, to the code and what, it, what that means um, as far as giving sufficient comfort of, of the funder's ability to fund. Um, I think it's notable that some of the, the members, or sorry, non-ALF members of, of the funding fraternity who are financing claims in the CAT um, still put reference in the, the litigation funding agreement that they will maintain uh, compliance with the code, notwithstanding they're not members. So I think that you know there's still a big role for the the ALF and, and the codes in, in the UK. What what will happen globally? I think is a bigger question. We've obviously seen increased regulation in Australia. Um, it will be interesting to see how the role of organisations like the International Legal Finance Association, which was set up recently, partly as a way of maintaining. Um, ethics, but also uh, partly to have a sort of lobbying voice from from the funders, which hasn't always been there, um, to, to to really kind of push back on the, the ability of funders to to self-regulate. Yeah, I think I, I, th I think it's a watch this space um, point, isn't it, Simon? Because you know, yeah. however well the self-regulation goes and conscientiously it's done, this is just too material and important and becoming mature a line of business i think to avoid regulation forever and you, you've seen that in 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 other areas um but yeah let, let let's see um i suppose the next point i would i would make is um that although um defendants can use funding um and we may talk about that in a different in a different podcast what I've seen uh, on the defence side is that the growth of the UK funding market has really increased the claimant-friendly nature of the UK as a forum, at least for competition damages actions. And it's clear to me that it stimulated some very creative work 
by lawyers and funders um, targeting consumer facing businesses in particular, such that we may be really seeing not much more than the tip of the iceberg on the litigation that is currently being planned uh, and worked on. And the other thing that you know, I've, I've observed over the last few years is that being a party to a funded claim on either side um, is starting to become something that requires specialist consideration because you need to understand the commercial drivers behind the funding arrangements. Uh, and that's leading to some um, strategic or tactical, depending on how you look at it, steps in litigation bought at understanding or targeted at understanding the nature of the funding arrangements. You know, how much information is provided to defendants um, about the way the funding, the funding works, what they're entitled to, and an increase in related security for cost applications. Um, but it is very clear to me that this is a rapidly developing area, rapidly specialising, um, and definitely one to watch, um, not just for lawyers, but for businesses, businesses, and as I say, particularly consumer-facing business. Indeed. Um, so thank you, Tom, and, and thank you, Simon. That brings us to the end of our second episode. Um, Simon, in particular, thank you for joining us um, and for providing some really fascinating insights into the funding industry. Um, certainly, it's something I'll be picking up with you again um, uh, to, to understand your fascinating insights. Um, and thank you to all of you for listening. Um, if you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources on competition litigation on the Linklaters website. Our next podcast will be on collective actions um, and we'll be joined by one of our counterparts on the claimant side to provide us with uh, their perspective on that, that also very rapidly developing area. Uh, and if you would like to get in touch with any one of the team, then do please reach out to any one of us using the details on the Linklaters and Augusta Ventures websites. <laughs>